our First Samuel series called Jesus is King. And tonight we're in First Samuel chapter 17. So we're past the halfway point and we've got 58 verses to cover. So this is only going to take three hours and 30 minutes, but it'll be the best three hour and 30 minute sermon uh, that you've heard in a while. So, um, no, we'll, we'll cram a lot in, uh, in, a, in a short amount of time tonight. But let me, let me say this. Tonight we're talking about David and Goliath. Uh, the the story that most of us know, even if you didn't grow up in church, you didn't know nothing about church stuff, you still know the story of David and Goliath. When I say David and Goliath, what kind of things come to mind? Giant? Anybody else? It's okay, you can talk. Underdog? Fear? For sure. Faith? God? Uh, providing a way to deliver you in the midst of a, a huge challenge. I think we all uh, have those thoughts, and many of them, if not all of those, those are, those are truly accurate things. But tonight, I want to kind of deconstruct our understanding, uh, for most of us probably, uh, the way that we were taught this story. And I want to look at it through um, w- what I think is a better view, uh, because it's a more biblical view. And, and let me say this as um sharing that. Um, well, let me just pull this up for you. There we go. The theme, even though we're talking about David and Goliath, is that Jesus fought for you. It's usually not the first thing we think of when we think of David and Goliath. But when we tackle scripture, no matter what it is, we've got to start in, in the same place, and that is the historical context. Hopefully you guys can see this board up here. Uh, I know my handwriting is wonderful. But the first thing we've got to see is the historical context. And from there, uh, we'll take a couple paths. So historically, we see um, this was not in a vacuum. We see that the David and Goliath story was placed in 1 Samuel 17. God put this story in history for a reason. And this is the reason that Saul was the king that God gave the Israelites because they wanted a king like all the other nations. And he was big and he was tall and he was just like the kings from the other nations. And he did things like kings from other nations and that he didn't follow God. And God said, okay, this didn't work out. So I've got another person that's going to be king. And he's not as big, but he's going to be King David. And and so um, he's going to follow me and lead as a king in a different way. And so tonight we see the historical context is that God is showing the Israelite nation, uh, teaching them a lesson and helping to move David into uh, a position of leadership, showing what a worldly king in Saul is like compared to a godly king. So that's the historical context. But from there, you got to decide which way are you going to go. Now, uh, most preachers, a lot of preachers, uh, they, they go over here to the left. This is the, the moralistic view. I remember um, a few years ago when Tara and I, we were in Utah planting a church in we were looking at our kids' material, what we were teaching the kids and kids' church and whatnot, and there were all these Old Testament stories, and, and the, the gist of every story was, hey, just have faith. Hey, um, God will help you overcome big things in life. And, and, you know, once or twice, okay, that's okay. But, like, that's all they're learning. That's all they're learning from the Bible. It's just these, these principles, these moralistic uh, teachings, which are good. They might very well be true. But here's the thing. The reason you are going to go down one of these two paths is based on how you view the Word of God as a whole. 
And what I mean is, uh, if you view the word of God given to mankind as primarily about uh, guiding you, which it is, but if that's, if that's primarily how you view it, then you're going to naturally look at these Old Testament stories and find yourself in the main character's position. So you see Joshua, and you're like, dude, I'm kind of like Joshua. I'll just do what Joshua did. You see Moses, you're like, I'll just kind of do what Moses did. You see this story tonight, and you say, I'm David, and my debt is Goliath. My broken relationships are the Goliath. We, we put um, whatever obstacle is in our life on the other side and say, that's the Goliath, and I'm David, and I just got to have faith, and I got to have trust and whatnot. The problem is, where does that lead you? Like, what's the end result of that kind of belief? Because if you leave here tonight with that kind of, if you leave here thinking, man, I'm, I got renewed energy and hope that I can slay whatever's going on in my life, even though there might be truths to that. But if that's the primary viewpoint that you have, what happens when you go and get the five stones that David had and you throw them and Goliath isn't slayed? You miss. And then you blame God and say, God, where are you in my story? I got all pumped up at cross training the other night because I was like, I'm David and Goliath is going to go down. And then you tried it and you realized you're not good enough to bring down Goliath. And it sets you up for heartache and despair. Now, are there truths in this? Does God love you? Is God for Yes, there's truth. Should we have faith? Should we trust? Of course we should. But you are not David in this story. There's another one over here. This Christ-exalting path that, that we're going to take tonight. That's how, we, that's how we get to this theme right here that Jesus fought for you. This is the understanding that the Bible is all about God and we are a part of that story. Not the Bible is about us and God is a part of the story. Does that make sense? Two completely different ways of looking at Scripture. It is a proclamation of God. And so God is the main character, the, the hero of his own story. That means if we see whatever passage we've got tonight, 1 Samuel 17, we have to look at it in this context. Okay, it's got a historical setting, but all of Scripture is meant to glorify God and to point us to Jesus. All of Scripture is going to point us to the hero. So all of a sudden we realize... Now, if Scripture is pointing us to God, primarily, even though it is a lamp unto our feet, but if, it, if it's pointing us to God, then maybe Jesus is David. No, Jesus is the better David. And maybe we are the cowardly Israelites in the background who come face to face with something we can't conquer without a hero named Jesus. You see, here's the end result of that kind of mindset is you leave here tonight worshiping Jesus. Free, knowing you can rest in his finished work on the cross. And your renewed hope doesn't come in your own strength or willpower to change your own life. It comes in the fact that we stood there just like the Israelites day in and day out, seeing the biggest obstacle we could ever face, sin and death. And we couldn't do anything about it but die. And we got rescued. Jesus is the better David. So, you guys following me on this? Two completely different ways. So I'm not saying that we don't draw out principles of faith and trust in God. Of course that's in there. 
that there's a better and more primary purpose to this passage. And it's to point us to Jesus. Jesus. So, with that being said, let's jump in to a dainty 58 verses <laughs> in chapter 17. Let me put this over here. All right. It says in verse 1, Now the Philistines, remember that's who the Israelites have been fighting over and over and over. The Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Ezekah, in Ephes Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. So you can picture this. Everyone's lined up here, everyone's lined up here, and they're just kind of staring at each other. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Some Old, Test oh, some old manuscripts say uh, four cubits. If it's four cubits, it's six and a half feet tall. If it's six cubits, like it says, then he would be nine feet, nine inches. Either one uh, is pretty tall. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, or a coat of metal. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, 128 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, 15 pounds. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So obviously Israel was not familiar with this kind of battle where one guy comes out and says let's do this and they're, they're used to just going and charging and so this is new to him and so Goliath's got to explain to him how this works verse 10 and the Philistines said I defy the ranks of Israel this day give me a man that we may fight together and when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine they were dismayed and greatly afraid all right let's park there what we see in these first 11 verses of David and Goliath is the sinner's perspective. The sinner's perspective. So this is the battleground. Now you see this imagery of, again, two, two armies lined up against each other. And every day for 40 days, this guy, Goliath, who's either 6 foot 6 or 9 foot 9, comes out and he's got 200 pounds of armor on him. He's got a spear, like a javelin, with 15-pound head on this thing that could just cut through whatever. He's got, uh, he's got a sword and a sheath on his back. Like, he is the epitome of intimidation. Now, if we see this passage, understanding that it's all pointing to Jesus, David, even though a historical figure, a real person, Goliath, a real person, but also types, shadows of Jesus, of sin, then we recognize Goliath, Goliath is sin. And the picture painted is that it leads to death, and that's really scary. It's really scary. This is a big deal that we see sin in this light. 
Um, I think, <laughs> I think in, in 2016 here in America, we, we, have, uh, we have a different picture of scary things. Like, I don't know where Goliath would fit in in our culture. He, he doesn't, uh, I don't even know, like, where he would work out, let's be honest. Um, some of you have maybe jumped on the Planet Fitness bandwagon. I, I know I did. I'll be honest, super cheap, and, uh, and it's going pretty well so far. So I, I, I actually like it. But I kind of I laugh to myself when I go in there because they say we're not a gym, and they have this big motto on, on their wall talking about how they're, they're more of an environment and atmosphere for health and whatnot. But they are, they're, they're searching uh, a niche, which is like 99% of our, our, our world, that doesn't want to be intimidated by big brutes and super skinny females. Like, they, they want to feel like they can just casually work out and, and it's okay if they don't look perfect and whatnot. And they even got this big uh, alarm bell thing on the side if you've been in there. It's a lunk alarm. So if you uh, are lifting weights, even though there's like no free weights really, um, but if you're lifting weights and you're grunting or whatever, they'll ring this bell, supposedly, and, um, and have you stop. Now, I haven't um, I haven't had to stop. You can imagine all the grunting that I do with all the big weights that I have. I, I, I haven't seen anyone have the lunk alarm pulled on them yet. But it's funny that they have this, and they have uh, once a month, they have like pizza uh, day, and then they have Tootsie Rolls when you first come in. So just this environment of like saying, hey, I know you want to be healthy, but let's get you comfortable. <laughs> let's get you comfortable in kind of uh, uh, this wimpiness and just make you feel, feel at ease. They got a niche. They got a niche. But it's kind of like what we do with sin, isn't it? I mean, here's the thing. I appreciate this story for a lot of reasons. Because it just shows the opponent to be as big and scary as it should be. Like, you see Goliath, and you're just like straight up, (laughs) we're going to die. It is what it is. But we do whatever we can to try to tame down the seriousness of sin, do we not? And we don't, we don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to talk about death. These things scare us. They make us uncomfortable. And you think about all of the things that we do and that the world does to attempt to avoid or get away from this issue. One thing we do is we, out, we try to outlast it. You look at health. Man, let's take care of our bodies. We're created in the image of God. It's good. But some of us, we can obviously go too far. You've got plastic surgery. You've got um, different things that can help you to live X amount of years longer. Like people are consumed with trying to extend life. Like we don't have to talk about hell and death and sin if we can just live <laughs> forever, right? It's tuck everlasting in 2016. Like five of you got that probably, right? Um, so we, we try to... We try to outlast it. We also try to avoid it. Of course, there's a million different religions that will teach you different ways to avoid some kind of eternal destiny in an unpleasant place. Uh, If you find inner peace with yourself, that's the goal. And and there's all kinds of religions that might help you find that. So, hey, we see that there's a problem in the world. There's evil and it might even be in us. But let's just kind of avoid it with some kind of religious uh, band-aid on it. You see, some people just try to ignore it. They know there's an issue. They see the news. They see brokenness. uh, But they just kind of tuck their head in the sand. And and they just go on with uh, projects, with focus on the American dream. And just, you know what, let's go to work. Uh, Let's just save up our money. Let's just take care of our stuff and just put our our nose to the grind. Let's just just ignore the scary sin stuff. But man, here's the thing. 
the Israelites ain't lining up against Goliath, saying, we're going to outlast it. It's been 40 days and 40 nights, and he's still standing. They're not able to avoid it. There's a whole army over there of Philistines. If they try to go to the left or the right, they're going to have to fight. There's just not much they can do about it. And I think it's good for us to have that perspective that we've got to come face to face. You see, the effects of sin will haunt you, and death will hunt you down. It's just the way it works. And once in a while, our country gets a glimpse of it, even if they're, they're of, not of the faith. When death happens, when tragedy happens, everyone is just brought down and says, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. You see, when you water down the seriousness of sin, then you water down the beauty of what Jesus did on the cross for our sin. And you don't think you need to be rescued. And so maturity in the Christian faith is keeping two perspectives in mind at all times. One is the beginning of this chapter, this picture right here, that sin and death is ever before us, and we need a Savior. And the second perspective is the end of chapter 17, that there is someone who won the war, and we can rejoice in that. Don't ever forget that we need Jesus, and don't ever forget how good he is. It's a good perspective to keep. Verses 12 on, we're going to cover a big old chunk here. Now David was the son of an Ephronite. I just did that real quick so I didn't have to do it right. Of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Now the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and remember, that's who Samuel thought would be the next king. He saw him. He was a big old guy and said, that must be the king. And it wasn't. All the sons went past, and David finally was the one. He said, that's going to be it. And next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. Now, David was the youngest, and the three oldest uh, followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to, keep, to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to, your, to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So you're probably catching on why we're covering big chunks. <laughs> There's a lot of details and a lot of repetition here. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done? So again, repetition. 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is the un- for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. He would get those blessings. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I, I love this. You see, it, big picture wise, it just looks like this biblical narrative, Old Testament stuff. But now you like, man, brothers, <laughs> you just see the, the real life in this. Brothers, butt heads. And where'd you leave the few sheep that we had in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. All right, next thing we see. And this text points us to the gospel. Very important thing that we learn in these 18 verses. That God's glory is the priority. God's glory is the priority. So here in a bit, David is going to engage in this battle. and He's going to kill Goliath. I think we know how, how that goes down. But the Israelites, who he's talking to, the army, they're about to benefit from his courage. They're about to benefit and be set free from David's courage. Now, what makes David want to fight? Is it God or is it the people? Because he says, who is this Philistine that would defy the armies of the living God? Now, you got to believe, <laughs> you got to believe um, that he loves his people, but it's not necessarily about his people. I mean, think about it. He just got done bickering back and forth with his brother, Elib, and he's talking to all these guys, these, these Israelites. Like, I'm sure he loves them. We're going to see that later in life. But he's talking about Goliath is stealing glory from my God. Goliath is out there defying, he says earlier, who's going to take off the reproach from the nation of Israel? Like, you, you are making God look bad when you mess with God's people. So although the Israelites benefit from David's battle, I think it's God that's the motivating factor. It's God's glory that's the motivating factor. Goliath, he's mocking God. I'm going to say something, maybe several things that might, might not sit well with you. So if Jesus is the better David, we know Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Well, well let, me, let me start here. Who does Jesus love the most? So heavens, earth, angels, you and me, um, any, anything in all of existence. Who do you think Jesus, when he, when he showed himself 2,000 years ago as a man, who does Jesus love the most? I like your style, Kent. I think you're right. Now, it is completely right to say God loves you. God is for you. Jesus died for you. Like, this has a lot to do with you. But it's really crucial in our understanding of the gospel to understand Jesus died on the cross for you, but he first died on the cross to obey the will of the Father. You look all throughout Scripture. 
all throughout Scripture, and you see that God does what God does for his name's sake, for his own glory. You can see Isaiah 43, Isaiah 49. You can see, um, I mean, we could just go throughout everything, uh, Habakkuk 2, <laughs> that the waters fill, they cover the earth. Why? For the glory of God. Uh, you see at the end of Revelation, Jesus is coming back. Why? For the glory of God. You see Psalm 23. It says uh, the, the famous passage of um, we God is our shepherd. We will not want. He'll lead us. He'll make us lie down in green pastures. He'll, all these things. And then it says, for God's name's sake. For his name's sake. Like, this is why Jesus did what Jesus did. Does he love us? Yes, but it's not about us. He came, and you see, uh, you see in Luke 22, you see in John chapter 5, John chapter 8, verse 28, the same thing that Jesus says over and over, I came to do my Father's will. I came to do my Father's will. I came to do my Father's will. He's consumed with God's timing, with God's will, with God's plan. He doesn't perform miracles that are not for the God. So he does things that benefit mankind. He loves mankind, but he first and foremost loves the Father. Now this might make you feel slighted. It shouldn't. Because it's not like it diminishes his love for us in any way, shape, or form. But this is a good thing, that he loves God first. You see, nothing can truly be holy in and of itself if it loves things other than God more than God. Because only one thing is worth being worthy of everyone's love, like first priority in everyone's life. That's God. That's God. So Jesus can't be holy if he's saying, listen, I am God, I love God, and there's only one who truly deserves my number one attention, like number one priority is God, but I'm going to say it's going to be mankind. And you can't love things other than God more than God and still be holy. Does that make sense? So he, he loves us, the same as we all believed he has ever loved us. But he loves God more. You see, this, we love this, though. This is good. Think about it. The best spouses, like those who have the healthiest marriages, they, they, they love God first so they can better love their spouse. The best parents, man, I think the most godly parents are the ones who love God first. And then their children are not their idols. <laughs> they can discipline them, they can love them freely and in healthy ways because God is first. The best bosses we have, why are they the best bosses? Because they love God first. You see, people who love God first, they're not swayed by man. Because their hopes, their dreams, their identity is not found in being loved back by humanity. If that was the case, Jesus would be very insecure. Because a whole bunch of people don't love him. But it's found in God and who he says he is. It frees you up. It frees you up. And we've got to remind ourselves when we have the perspective of the first 11 verses that sin and death are what we're facing and that we can't do this alone, we've got to remind ourselves, Jesus is the only one who could do what he did. Like, we might be enticed, we might be tempted to jump out there and play the role of David. You can't play the role of David. You just can't. You're not good enough. Maybe I've shared this story before. Um, it, if I did, then sorry, I'll share it again. Um, Last fall, we were at a conference, all the pastors from Cross Point. We were at a conference in Kansas City, and we stayed in a hotel room um, paired up with another leader, another pastor. 
And the one that I was with, we got to talking. And, and um, we didn't know each other super well, but we stayed up late at maybe 1130 midnight. And we were just talking and I was encouraging him. He was sharing just um, some ways that he was discouraged and whatnot. And I was ministering to him and I was thinking to myself, man, this is pretty good. This is, I'm feeling pretty good, man. You in the day, you hit the, you, your head hits the pillow at night, and you just got done ministering to other pastors. Like, man, you're doing pretty good for yourself. This is, this isn't too bad. I was feeling nice, man. I'm reaching out, encouraging another pastor. It's, it's great. You can start to think a little too highly of yourself. When we put, um, when, when lights went out, uh, I saw he had a CPAP machine. And he, he put on his little mask thing, and he was like, <laughs> kind of a little Darth Vader moment. And, and I was like, ah, okay, so why you got that CPAP machine? Oh, sleep apnea. And he started talking to me. I was like, man, that's when you, you stop breathing when you're sleeping. Like, this is dangerous stuff. This is scary. But I've never, I've never been in a room where someone else had a CPAP machine. Um, and so it was new to me. But I kind of was on edge going to sleep. I was like, ah, this is interesting. Well, we go to sleep, 3 in the morning. And I hear this, eh, 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 it sounds like the fire alarms are going off. It's the dude's CPAP machine going off, like just blaring. And now, you know, when you're super groggy, like pretty sleepy, and you, you can't process things, but like who you are in your inner self, like is going to come through in that moment because you, you can't fake it anymore. I thought to myself, maybe he's dying. Like why else would it be going off like that? Maybe he's dying. I thought to myself, he might be dying. And without thinking twice, I went back to sleep for the rest of the night. And I woke up in the morning, and my first thought, I turned, I rolled over, I heard him scrounging around over, and I said, dude, I heard your machine go off in the middle, I thought you were dead. And then he looked at me and realized, like, you thought I was dead, but you kept sleeping, and we, we had some awkwardness as to what my response was. And I'm reminded very quickly, no matter how holy, no matter how awesome I think I am, I am deeply flawed. I am deeply flawed. Thank God I am not your Savior. I, I let that man die in my mind. I let him die so that I could get a full night to rest. That's how I feel about my brothers in the faith. You've got to remind yourself, it's a blessing that Jesus is for God first. It's a blessing. There's some more I could share on that, but I'll just move on. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You were not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he was, listen, <laughs> if this is the standard for youth, what we're about to hear, dude, we got to step it up. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And, and when there came a lion or a bear, I like how it's just thrown together. If it was a lion or a bear, whatever, um, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. This is awesome. I don't know how you feel about it. 
And your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So David, he's a confident and peaceful young pup, even with all that's going on. Third thing we see. Jesus being the, de- the better David is that Jesus fought the right fight. He fought the right fight. So it's obvious <laughs> through this, this uh, history of David's life that he's got um, a pretty sweet background when it comes to being prepped for battle. Killing lions and bears. He's literally grabbing them. If they come up against him, he, he's grabbing him by their hair, their manes, and beating them to death with his stone. Like he's, he's got quite the background but it doesn't look like he's concerned anymore about lions and bears. He said he used to go sh- be a shepherd. He just got off the sh- shepherd field <laughs> like 10 minutes ago, didn't he? I mean, he, that's what he was doing prior to coming here. But you see, David, see, he, he knows, man, I, I did that in the past, but I got something in front of me that's far greater. It is far greater. You see, Jesus, he could have got caught up in political matters, in philosophical debates. He could have given in when the people said, make him king. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, no thanks. And he walks right through the crowd. David had a million, or excuse me, Jesus had a million opportunities to get sidetracked in his ministry, but he had laser focus. He knew what he was called to do, and his path was headed to the cross. He knew the right fight. He knew all the things that man around him wanted to get entangled in, and he even warned his disciples of it. But you can't get tripped up. You can't get involved in the lesser fight. You see, we know uh, for us as Christians, we know what our fight is. And we're called to be disciple makers. We're called to push back the gates of hell. We're called to be kingdom expanders. We're missionaries. We know that our battle is not against laws. Man, there's some jacked up laws in this country, but no matter how good they are, they're never going to be the law of God. They're just laws. Laws ain't that great if you consider the context. They're broken laws meant to contain broken people from doing more damage. (laughs) Not a lot of hope in all that. It's good to have laws, but our battle is not in changing laws. It's not in keeping God in school. As a matter of fact, I don't even know what that means, to keep God in the school system. Is it good for people to pray and do all that? Yeah, man, I love it. But you want to keep God in the school system, you make disciples of young men and women, teach them how to follow Jesus, they'll take God into the school system. I don't know how administrators ever kept God in the school system to begin with. Our fight is not about Who's in the White House? And the list can go on. You see, the gospel frees us from petty fights. It helps us to focus on the main thing, gospel and kingdom expansion. And that's beautiful. I got to wonder, what kind of battles are you guys finding yourself tripped up on, caught up in this week that you should never be fighting? What kind of battles you got right in front of you 
that you shouldn't be fighting. Some of us, we're stressed out right now because we're fighting for a better life. Man, if I, I, I got to get a better job, and I'm stressed out. And maybe you do. I hope God gives you a better job. But is that worth getting all stressed out about? Some of us are looking for that better house, that better home. And I, I want to get from apartment to home. Man, that might be great for you. But is it worth getting all stressed out about? Get to a better city. Make a little more money. Some of us, we're fighting the wrong fight. And we're, we're fighting for our reputation. And we want to have favor with people around us. It's good to have favor with people around us. But the gospel frees us from worrying about our reputation. You see, all the fights that we get wrapped up on in this world are meant from the enemy <laughs> to keep us from the main thing. He knows if he can trick Christians into thinking and engaging in goofy things that we should never get engaged in, under the premise that these things in them of themselves are decent things, they're good things to get involved in. But he knows if he can slow down kingdom growth if he makes us, tricks us into fighting the wrong fight. The other night, I, uh, I came home and had a discussion with Tara, and I jokingly told her um, that, um, essentially, to put it in a nutshell, that, that James had uh, messaged me during the day. We we both were kind of working out at the same time during the week, but we hadn't talked about it in the last uh, week or two, and he had, he had uh, sent me a message saying, hey, man, just want to check up on you, make sure you're going to the gym, everything's good there. And I, being kind of a smart aleck, sent back a message along the lines of, I'm good to go, man, don't need no encouragement, here's when I work out, blah, 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 blah. And I told Tara that, and she said, you didn't really tell him that, did you? And I was like, yeah, I told her, I'm good to go. And she said, you, what is wrong with you? And then she, you, wives have a unique way of helping you to face your sin. And, and, uh, and then the topic kind of went on into our marriage and, like, me encouraging her. Like, she, she likes, because she's a normal person, verbal encouragement. But I, I'm, I, I got a little bit of a hardened heart, and I didn't realize that until yesterday when it got, <laughs> when it got poked at a lot. Um, you know, to me, I'm just like, hey, listen, we all have jobs to do in life. Like, let's, let's be born, get saved, make disciples, and die. And that's all that needs to be said. And no one needs to tell anyone else, hey, you should do better at the things that you know God's telling you to do. Like, like just do it. God in and of himself is enough motivation. I struggle with, with this dependency on human encouragement. And she said, you're not really putting up a fight about this, are you? I was like, listen. You know, and I, I, my argument was lame. And, and for like 20, 30 minutes, we talked about this. She's like, I cannot believe you were arguing for not encouraging people. And finally, I was like, okay, fine, here's the bottom line. I don't want to encourage anybody. Just leave me alone. I'm just a grumpy old man. I don't want to encourage anybody. I'm flawed. What do you want me to say? Just, you know? And, and um, I've had some repenting to do in the last 24 hours. But the bottom line is, is that not incredibly silly? Like, I am, I am arguing, I'm fighting myself out. I'm talking myself out of making disciples and following the commands of Christ. To encourage one another is not just for fun. Like, that's a command. For me to fight against that is to fight against the very thing I was created for. How stupid is that? And yet I wonder if God, who was verbally talking to us tonight, how many people would he be looking at saying, you're engaged in the wrong stinking fight? 
You are fighting against things that in the end will not matter. They will perish. It will be over, and that will have no eternal fruit. Kingdom matters. This is a fight we need to be engaged in. You see, David once fought animals. But he don't fight them anymore after that. We've got to learn to fight the right fight. We've got to move along pretty quickly here. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. This is awesome. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And again, metal. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine's And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me. I love this. This is old school, come at me, bro stuff. You see those t-shirts? Come at me, bro. Like Goliath created that t-shirt. Anyway, come to me and I will give... I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the... Oh, this is awesome. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bod- And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth, all the earth, again, Habakkuk chapter 2, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Remember that. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. What do we see here? Jesus fought differently. Jesus fought differently. So obviously David fought differently. Saul says, you're going to go up against Goliath? Okay, you're probably going to die, but let's at least put on a whole bunch of armor. And David's like, no, <laughs> I'm good. I haven't tested this armor, so I'm going to go without it. Like, how silly is that? I haven't tested it. You'd think it's better than nothing, right? But God's showing an object lesson. He's going to fight differently. He's going to fight differently. When you got God on your side, he's going to fight differently. So David, he fights by going with trust, not in armor, but in God. He, he, he fights by taking steps of faith, by being obedient. He fights in a completely different way. Of course, you see Jesus a thousand years after this stand in front of the officials who are going to eventually say, boom, kill him. And he says, I could have 10,000 angels. Come right now and hang out with me. 
got Peter the night before chopping off ears. Jesus says, no, bro, (laughs) don't come at him. Jesus, similar to David, takes steps of obedience in the Father's will, trusts the Lord's plan, and knows that ultimately God, in his glory and for his glory, is going to have the ultimate victory. Jesus fights differently. He fights differently. I believe it's an art to learn how to fight with the gospel. It's an art to learn how to apply the good news of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross to any of the things that we face today. Whether it's simply in our minds, we've got to apply the truth. Because I believe what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on that cross is more than enough for anything any one of us will ever face today. It is greater than every past sin, current sin, or future sin. It's greater than any obstacle. It, it is the cure-all for all. It is new life. It is, it's everything that we need. And so if we're going to fight with the gospel, what that means is we apply truth. We proclaim what's been done for us over things. And it changes the way we uh, view all of life. And so you think about even the mental battles some of us are going through in our minds as we're going through life. Some of us, when we have broken relationships, we want to fight. Um, uh, we we want to fight for our reputation, right? And, and, and we could just go at it and say, you know what? I got to fix this situation. I got to make things right. I got I to gotta jump in and just handle things. And Jesus... 2,000 years ago, died, was resurrected, and gives us the right to understand, listen, you you want a good reputation, why? Because you want favor with him? Well, through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, we have favor with God. And Jesus himself said, don't worry about men who can only kill you. Worry about God who can throw your soul into hell. And so that's who you should be thinking about. And so we, we look at our own reputation and say, man, I want a good reputation. It's good to have a good reputation, but I can't get a better reputation right now if I tried when it comes to God. Because my reputation is with what Jesus did. Jesus imputes his beautiful reputation with the Father onto all those who believe. When God sees you, he sees his son, if you believe. Jesus is Lord. You look at your identity and you struggle with your thoughts. You, you, you're going through college. You think about, man, who am I? You're an empty nester. You're like, wow, it feels like a midlife crisis a little bit. Listen, you can fight all day long against what's happening inside of you and, and who you really are and your identity. Our culture obviously has identity issues. And yet the gospel says, well, this is who God says you are. This is who you get to claim to be. You are a child of God. You are dearly loved. You have been bought. You have been purchased. You are sitting at the table of God as part of the family of God. And you get to sit in that no matter what's going on in your life. That's truth. That's reality. Okay, this is what it's like to fight with the gospel. You apply truth to your insecurities. You apply truth to whatever is in front of you, even if it's going on in your own mind. And you know, as disciple makers, the enemy is going to try to trick you and deceive you and lie to you when it comes to the mission of God. You will get discouraged. You will find yourself enraged at some of the obstacles you face. But here's the deal. The old devil, he, he, he is... He is all bark and no bite. He can't do what he once did to mankind. Jesus, when he conquered death on the cross, he took the tool belt away from the enemy. He says, your greatest tool was death. If you could help usher people into death, man, you got something. 
But now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, my people are set free. They don't fear death anymore. What are you going to do to them? They don't, they, they're not under your power anymore. they got my Holy Spirit in them. And you gotta, you got you to apply these truths. You see, I think the church, I think the church is way too stressed out over the wrong things. Uh, you read through 2,000 years of martyrs in the church, and some of the stories you hear, whether it be in the Middle East or somewhere around the world, it seems like there's more peace and confidence in the death march of some of the martyrs than there are in the average everyday Christian in our church. We got people more stressed out about fighting the wrong fights and fighting them the wrong way than some of the people who have died horrible deaths for the sake of their faith. Is that not crazy talk? Is that not crazy to think? And the enemy is tricking us. He says, fight the wrong fight, get caught up in stupid things, make disciples, that's an afterthought. And number two, fight wrong. Forget about what Jesus did on the cross. That's a message that you got that ushered you into salvation, but just don't think about it much. I'm telling you what, it changes everything every day. Jesus fought differently, and we fight differently. Last but not least, verses 51 through 58. So then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, again, that's Goliath, and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So remember, David had been playing harp for Saul. They had some kind of relationship, but Saul obviously didn't care too much about him if he's asking about his background at this point. O king, I do not know. The last few verses. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Last but not least, Jesus already won the war. Jesus already won the war. So here we are. We finally, after a whole bunch of verses, you and me finally come back into the picture. The Israelites, the cowards who are sitting in the back, not able to fight this fight against their own sin, against death. And boom. Now they're engaged in the battle. Isn't it interesting timing, though? <laughs> this is my kind of battle. Isn't it interesting timing when God's people get involved? It's when? It's after the battle was won. It's after the war was won. I don't know about you, but I love 
those kinds uh, of, of battles. I love when, when I hear <laughs> I hear friends or family people say, "Hey, I got a big uh, I got a, I got a, a big project with my car," um, or you know what, I'm working in the house, big project, hang some drywall or something, and I might need some help or whatever. And I say, "Hey, you know what?" Um, Come get me when it's all done, and I'd love to help. And you joke, about 1% of you is joking, and 99% of you is like, <laughs> I'm, I'm being serious, really. I don't want to actually do the hard work, right? Because, man, it stinks. So Jesus, he does the hard work, and all the Israelites, all you and I have to do now is proclaim and charge. Proclaim and charge. The, the enemy is running. The enemy knows what happened on the cross and in the resurrection has conquered us. We got nothing. The enemy is scrambling. The old devil is scrambling. And God's church is meant to, as Matthew 16, 18 says, it's meant to be on the offensive. It's meant to charge. God's will is for us to proclaim what Jesus has done and charge, 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 charge. It says that the gates of hell, when Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus will build his church, and he says, and the gates of hell shall not, what? Prevail against it. How many of you know gates to be on the offensive? <laughs> no, gates are on the defensive. Gates are there to protect. Don't come in here. That's why there's a gate. So if, if the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, what is the assumption? The assumption is the church is on the offensive. The church is pushing back the gates of hell. That's our job, and what a blessing it is that we get to come into this battle after it's all done and simply proclaim the victory. That's the mission. That's a pretty good mission. You show up when the work is done, and you get to freely boast and enjoy the spoils. God has given us the message to proclaim. He's given us the power in his Holy Spirit to make us courageous, to make us bold. He has given us his word to remind us who he is and what he's done and guide us along the way. And he's given us his presence. You see, David had faith, trust, courage, confidence because he knew God and his will. But when you and I partake in the battle, we have faith, trust, courage, and confidence because we know what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago. And it applies as much today as it ever has. Let me ask you this as we close out. This is meant to leave you worshiping Jesus tonight. That's the story of David and Goliath. If you, don't, if you walk away from David and Goliath and say, man, I just got to try harder, well, you heard the wrong story. You heard some bad preaching. But tonight, I want you to walk away worshiping Jesus thankful that he fought a fight that we couldn't fight on our own and that we get to be part of his mission and that's simply proclaiming the victory are you resting in his victory this week or are you fighting battles you shouldn't be fighting are you fighting them with your own willpower in ways you should never have been fighting them before we fight with faith with trust Christ has done. Let's pray.